So before we start to talk about how conservationists found themselves in the conservation industry, I want to talk a little bit about a project that my friend Nyla and I created last year in 2020 to help women in North Sumatra find their journey and their path into the conservation industry with a supportive network of people around them. As you can tell by season one of the podcast or my book, I kind of struggled in North Sumatra to be a female conservationist because the pressures on women are so different there and Nyla as someone who is local to North Sumatra understands the pressures even more than I do as she lives there every day so we put our heads together and we decided we actually wanted to do something and so we created the Shokandi Women Empowerment Fellowship and Shokandi means heroine because we believe that all female conservationists are just heroes just working so tirelessly for saving local landscapes and species. So last year we were able to send four women on this fellowship and it was full of local speakers, experiences, education opportunities, but most importantly it was creating this safe space, this network of like-minded women and it was totally run by Nyla, so it was all in their language, all local and it was just something that I felt really proud of. We would really love to run it again this year with more women involved, so we'd love your help to make it happen. The Patreons over at Lonely Conservationist uh, Patreon have already raised $400, but I think we can do a little bit better than that. So if you want to help see the Shakandi Women Empowerment Fellowship come into fruition in 2021 even bigger and better than ever, Feel free to become a Patreon yourself over at patreon.com slash lonelyconservationist or you can even found, find a PayPal donate button over at the website at lonelyconservationist.com. So any support you could give us to help women in conservation in North Sumatra become the best and brightest and most happiest they can be um, would be really incredible. Um, so yeah, with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. everybody and welcome to how to conserve conservationist the podcast season two all about you i am jesse and i'm todd yay we don't have a weird intro anymore well you just made it weird well everything about this podcast is usually really weird so it's just teeming with a theme um but today's episode is number six and it's all about alternative pathways into conservation and we actually did a what, what was it called? The Lonely Conversationist. We did a workshop and a discussion about this last year with Gus and Maria. And it was the, one of the most popular topics that we had because I think a common theme for a lot of conservationists is feeling like if you haven't been a purist conservationist, like you weren't born into it when you were three years old, like I was. And you, you, yeah. Like you had a career or you studied something else before getting into conservation and oftentimes it might make you feel like you don't have enough experience or you're not as as uh, legit of a conservationist as others you may perceive others to be. So I think this is a really important topic to touch on again um, because this has just resonated with so many conservationists in the community. And I know we all know Todd, our resident now conservationist, former IT professional, can also relate to this as well. <laughs> he is currently rocking a meerkat shirt to further add to the conspiracy theory that Todd is a dedicated professional conservationist. <laughs> uh, when did I become a conservationist? 
when you got bullied into it oh, yeah. after the podcast last year. Some people thought you were more of a conservationist than some of their friends who have tried to be in the conservation industry. <laughs> so it just goes to show that if Todd can be respected as a conservationist, then you probably can as well. So I think I've actually um, learned a lot from everyone in the community and the value of ha- having other skills and bringing other skills to the table because I was a purist conservationist and I never took the time to get like business skills or... I don't know, random other skills that you might need in the industry. But this in year... any type of math. <laughs> yeah. Um, until I did the business incubator in 2019, and it was like entering a whole new world. And now um, this year, I'm doing a certificate in training and accreditation because I want to... I feel like I've learned from Lonely Conservationists that conservation skills are good, but you need some specialty other skills to be able to really do something amazing with your conservation skills. And I found that my passion was speaking to people and teaching and training. Okay, so truth be told, I have actually stopped that certificate. I don't do it anymore. And it's because I got a job as a bush kindy teacher, which um, took up more time than I thought. Being a teacher, even though like I'm a facilitator, I guess I'm not really teaching them in a more formal capacity. They're teaching me as much as I'm teaching them. Um, but it ta- it takes up a lot of time to be a teacher. You have to plan out what you're going to do. <laughs> you have to put a lot of time and energy and resources into it. Um, so although I stopped learning how to teach, I started just getting out there and doing it. So although I stopped doing that certificate, my point still remains. I'm not a purist conservationist, like saving newts or anything. I'm doing things like teaching and putting skills that I have that are external to what I learned in a conservation class to use. And I found that I've just been inspired by the people in this community to get these other skills so I can take uh, my career to the next level. So I can't remember where I heard it, but you want to be a pie person. A pie person? Yeah. Have fingers in a lot of pies? So (laughs) most people who know a lot about something, like their knowledge is T-shaped. Yep. So very shallow across the board on the top there. Yeah. And then the the capital T. So you've got a a line, deep knowledge of one topic. Yeah. Instead, you want to be the pie, the mathematical pie symbol. With two drop downs. With two drop downs. So you have multiple deep knowledge that aren't aren't next to each other. Mm -hmm. And they're like the most useful people on the planet. Yeah. And this is why I feel so bad for everyone who thinks oh I've come into conservation late I was too busy focusing on stats I was too busy focusing on engineering I wish I was you because I've learned over my career that people who are good at electronical engineering electrical engineering or maths or whatever if you combine those skills with conservation skills how you can apply tangible solutions to conservation problems is like way more effective than someone who just studied conservation so be a pie person. Um, And the pie people that we are going to be learning from today are the blog authors Amber and Lynette. And as per usual, I will um, have their blogs in the show notes so you can read along if you haven't read their blogs already. And I wonder, like, so we're filming this part, all of the podcasts, we're filming them before March so we can have them done after the wedding. But I'm really wondering how many of you since listening to this season of the podcast 
have started to read more of the blogs or have uncovered blogs that you hadn't read before. Um, I really, really hope that this season opens your mind to a lot of the amazing authors and the stories they have to share on the website. So uh, yeah, let's get into it. So the first blog is by Amber, who I would never have her story because this I don't know did I talk about this in the last podcast in the last season that I got four out of 30 on a fractions test what like maths is not my strong suit well the fact that you say four out of 30 suggests to me you understand fractions to some degree that's how they give you the grade (laughs) you get your fractions grade back and you don't even comprehend your answer your results yeah I don't know like so for this TAFE course I'm doing, I had to pass a literacy and numeracy test to like get in. And I got full marks on the literacy test and I got only three out of five on the numeracy test. So my fractions are still a bit rusty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're going to talk about Amber, who started off with a love for nature, but ended up getting into a bit of a career in maths. Uh, not a career, actually. She just uh, had a university tangent into a maths degree. Yeah, which I found very interesting because if I was struggling, she was struggling with um, her initial degree, mm-hmm. um, almost definitely because of like unrelated mental health issues. Well, she said she... she moved away for her, so she started off doing a degree in zoology because she loved nature and she had good experiences in nature and she, that was what she was passionate about. But to do that degree, she moved locations, so she didn't know anyone she was mm. in a brand new place and then she felt really she felt not mentally healthy and ended up getting diagnosed with anxiety disorder so she thought that maybe her degree had something to do with the way she was feeling understandably yeah. but like yeah obviously like the shock of a whole different lifestyle mm-hmm. and different place would probably play, play into, into it as well, well. so she says, I'm going to read a little paragraph as we do from oh, Amber. I wasn't finished, but go on. Oh, I was just, do you want to say anything before I talk about getting into maths? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, so she says, maths was my best subject at school and people kept telling me that I was guaranteed a good job and good money with a maths degree, so I went for it. It was super scary as a decision to make and I was worried that everyone would see me as a failure, but I felt like it was my only choice. I went back to sixth form, reset some A-levels and tried some new ones and I got accepted to study mathematics at a really weird name university, Aberswith? Aberswith University? Do you think that's what it is? (laughs) There's a T in there somewhere for some reason. Aberswith? If you're from England, please correct me. (laughs) We, we cannot speak English. We do not have words like that here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically she heard from her fer- friends and family that she could get more money if she did a maths degree. She, it was her best subject at school. So she thought maybe this was a better decision for her. Which surprises me because in my personal experience, most people who do something like a math degree really struggle at it and then drop out and then do something a bit quote unquote more cushy like a soft science like biology (laughs) are you you speaking from experience no no (laughs) (laughs) i never studied biology yeah but you didn't do well in your math degree at uni yeah uni math is like 
it's really interesting concepts that I would happily sit down and learn about, but when you frame it as you need to learn this for a test, <laughs> it's suddenly a different ball game. Yeah. Todd was uh, asked not to complete his university degree degree because of his math. Was it math? Yeah. Yeah. So props to Amber for doing better than Todd. <laughs> you just nonchalantly like, oh, I'll get an easy course. Like math. Just does math and does super well at it. Because I, when I was reading this, I was trying to think about what math careers you could have. And all I could think of was being an accountant. And that's kind of a meme nowadays where it's like, if you're a sex worker or an influencer <laughs> or something where you like people ask you what you do and you, you can't really easily explain it. A lot of people are like, just say you're an accountant. But then somebody did that and then the person who asked was also an accountant and was like, oh, what firm do you work yeah. in? <laughs> and they're like, oh shit, I don't know. <laughs> I never got this far. I've never had to explain my job this much. <laughs> yeah. A fictional job. Yeah. So what other mass jobs are there? I guess... I th- Maybe it's different in different countries, but I know here... Like as interesting as it is, it's it doesn't immediately lead to career opportunities. Just the same it, way like being a doctor or a lawyer does. I guess like I can imagine maths playing into being a architect or an engineer, but then there's degrees just for engineering and architecture where maths is just subjects. Like I can't really think of just a maths purist job. Apparently in America anyone who does mathematics in uni they immediately get a job with like the cia or like you know the spy agencies because they do like cryptography and stuff like that okay so they want all the math they could take your job take what (laughs) secret security jobs yeah (laughs) todd's not in the cia by the way (laughs) or maybe he is (laughs) yeah well everyone I don't know if it's true or not. Apparently, most people who are in the spy agencies, they are told to tell their family and friends that they work in IT at a different company. Ah, there you go. It's a common alibi. For the same reason as accounting, because no one's going to ask you about your job. <laughs> oh, with you, the computers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just internet things. Yeah. So, basically, she completed her mass degree, but inevitably hated it the whole time. Because just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's enjoyable to just focus purely on it for a long time, for three years or however long a yeah. degree takes. Um, so when she graduated, she was told she was going to have all these jobs, but then she had no idea what to do next. And obviously, if you hated your degree, it's not going to be really inspiring to just get into a mathematical job. So she was having a bit of a think about what she wanted to do. Um, but she ended up deciding to change back into a degree in conservation and biology but with another university who was partnered with Chester Zoo which is a place she used to visit all the time so it just seemed like she was in a better mental state she already had a degree under her belt she knew that she could do it from like a a studying standpoint so she decided to give it another go Um, but as I was saying before she felt as if, she, because she wasn't a purist conservationist and she spent all this time on her maths degree, she felt a bit behind because she's never studied abroad, she'd never studied in like a wildlife sanctuary. You couldn't give her any animal on earth and immediately expect her to answer like 50 fun facts about that animal. <laughs> well, I don't know, like the thing about conservation is a lot of people read a lot in their spare time and if she's already hanging out in nature, she probably had a really in-depth like uh, understanding about the world around her and nature she just didn't have those very specialized hands-on experiences of field work but 
her edge. This is where the mass degree comes into play. This is where I wish I this is I was a bit jealous you of had this personal struggles. I wish I had her skills because because she had a mass degree, she wasn't bogged down in the statistics of the degree. She wasn't bogged down in using R. She wasn't bogged down in the nitty gritty data analysis because she had a freaking math degree, which meant she could just focus on all the fun stuff, which is like a life hack. Like, I think a lot of conservationists, including myself, uh, we love doing all the field work. We like doing all the fun stuff, learning about plants and animals. And then it comes to stats and we just cry for like hours. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that Amber could avoid that trauma of statistics because she just done a whole degree and understood it. Yeah. Like that is amazing for Amber. That is actually, yeah. It reminds me of someone I knew in high school who did the final year of high school twice. Yeah. One year was all the normal subjects except for math. Yeah. And then he did another year of it just, just math, math because he knew it would take 100% of his attention <laughs> to like get through this one class. Yeah. But I like, wanted to be able to do all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, like, so having to split up and like learning about the math side, but also like the. Thing you're applying it to at mm-hmm. the same time it can be difficult i swear i'm like i'm not that angsty but when it comes to stats i just i think i have this thing where like when i think I, you have a legitimate phobia of yeah math. i have a phobia of numbers whenever i think not of even numbers, math, numbers my brain shuts down and i can't it's like my brain empties and it's just a fog of nothing and then i freak out that i can't even think of literally anything <laughs> and like you're in a store and you see like oh 40 percent off sale and i know how to work it out on a calculator but i know some people who can just like work it out in their head and like approximate what what kind of like cost a shirt would be or whatever yeah it just freaks me out like i i wish i had more skill but actually funnily enough two years ago i worked in a fruit and veg store where i had to work like if there was not enough uh broccoli i might have to subtract that amount from their total bill or something and i wrote down i didn't have a calculator and i wrote down like the long uh subtraction where you have like three digits subtracted three digits and I totally forgot what you did when there was a smaller number on the top. <laughs> and so I came back home and I like was determined to learn how to subtract again properly. Yeah. <laughs> and then we were just sitting on the couch for the rest of the day watching subtraction mass YouTube videos. Yeah. But it's like something that's so easy and you do it in primary school. And I just totally like did not hold on to a single <laughs> second of it. So I really... This is where I think Amber is going to have such huge success, especially if she stays in science, is the stats which hold so many conservationists back is not even going to bother her at all. Yeah. I just think that's incredible and Amber has a really bright future ahead of her. (laughs) Because, like, no matter if you're in science or if you just do field work where you're out measuring things or if you have to build enclosures and you need, like, trigonometry to work out, like, the difference. Well, can I just point out of, like, the math she studied would have been a bit different than just trigonometry and fractions. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, like, having a fun, like, a really good foundational understanding of math and even if it's, like, you spend all your time doing, like, really complicated equations knowing like a good foundational knowledge is going to help you in whatever career you do i know because every time it comes up i just suffer i just cry (laughs) um so yeah that's amber's story and that's a really good one to showcase 
just how having other other skills really help you even though she didn't even have a mass career even just in like the university degree sense just because you've done a lot of degrees and you couldn't make up your mind or you changed for whatever reason it doesn't mean you're worse off for not just doing conservation the whole time like there's yeah. there's perks to it so our next author is Lynette and she is actually I she's so amazing I wrote about her in the book I don't know if she knows this Lynn I don't know if you've read the book but in the skills chapter I talk about you because <laughs> she's just the most wonderful woman so when I was doing my business incubator I was really struggling with the business side and I was about to give up I was literally about to throw the towel in but um Lynette messaged me on Instagram like oh if you ever need a chat like give me a call I was really hesitant and nervous because I was just scared by the whole process but I gave her a call anyway and she was the one that said like think about how many skills there are in the conservation industry and how many skills you need to acquire to do your job from learning first aid to the stats to the writing to the speaking like nobody is just a conservationist um, and she's the one that really changed the way I looked about conservation so I think it's going to be a really good time to look into her journey and all the different weaves was peaks and troughs that took her into her uh, very niche experience in conservation so Lynette is English and she grew up in a little small town where there was a lot of rolling hills and forests and orchids and badgers and little critters running around <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to read this paragraph because I think this is just this encapsulates like I think what you think of when you grow up how you don't think that there needs to be conservationists because when you grow up in like the hills and with the forest everyone seems to just be one with nature and understand the connections but she says my family were all biologists of some description with an emotional connection to the country and the knowledge of all its inhabitants, be them some slimy, scaly, feathered or furry. I ha it hadn't even occurred to me that conservationists were necessary. Surely everyone had the ability to see, hear and feel. Uh, surely everyone with the ability to see, hear and feel would just look at the things that needed protection. Mm. So, Which I can't relate to. <laughs> so there I grew go. up you know, hanging out with my friends, riding our bikes through the forests, making little tree houses, but it's all like just backdropped for us having fun. Yeah. Your fun was the most important thing, not the tree that you were yeah. building in. Us us mucking around was the fun part. And like we wouldn't be captivated by the bugs and birds and stuff. Yeah. So I think that's like it's I wanted to put that in there because it shows the the perception of like oh this is so obvious how how can anyone not see it but for so much of the world it's yeah. just not obvious when she mentions in like in her current i'm getting ahead of ourselves but she mentions in her current career where she does meet people who just don't have this intuitive <laughs> utter love and respect for the natural world yeah so it's just a bit jarring when you think this is like so innate and that everyone thinks this way yeah it made me think of like if if your kid grows up in the suburbs mm -hmm. do they just grow up with this like innate 
love and respect and knowledge of city planning <laughs> yeah and civil road engineering <laughs> i'm like man just oh the way they laid out the roads here it's really inspiring how can you not appreciate it you walk through it every day yeah <laughs> it's but, just background to those people but what's interesting is so this did not inspire her to become a conservationist because she thought oh there's no need to become a conservationist like there's just nature's everywhere and everyone respects it yeah so it wasn't her on her like career priority to get into conservation well her true passion was uh media tv film yeah and she said that when she was a kid and she was lying in bed she would present her shows to the fake camera that was in her roof i remember like when i was a kid and you just lie in bed. You you get sent to bed so early, like eight o'clock or seven thirty or something. And there's just so much time before you fall asleep yeah. for your mind to wander. But I love that vision of little kid Lynette performing her or presenting her TV shows to her imaginary audience in the sky. I think that's a very popular thing. Mm. I know I used to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just very cathartic to like pretend you're on. A, t- a night TV show being interviewed. <laughs> yeah. Like, man, you're so amazing. Thank you, thank you. Tell us about yourself. I never did that, but I used to pretend I was at different occasions, like maybe award shows or funerals or weddings or 21st parties, and I was giving speeches. Yeah. I would just fantasize about the speeches I would give to different people in my life. <laughs> there you go. I know. So um, she started off like that and really passionate about um, presenting and media um, and then after that, I think she had the idea of being an English teacher. Uh, well, that's what people just told her. Like, yeah. That's that's a, that's a throwaway dream. That's never going to happen. Don't just be being, a presenter. Just be an English teacher. Then you can just have a job. You're from England. Country. You should teach English. <laughs> <laughs> you can already speak English, probably. Yeah. It'll be easy to teach. It's, it's cool that, like, <laughs> both of these blogs, I think, are English. Yeah. Yeah, so... Shout out to the English out there, represented in this week's episode. <laughs> um, no, what? It wasn't... I believe Amber was from Wales. Oh, from Wales. Don't sorry. call her English. Sorry, sorry, Amber. <laughs> Is it still in the UK? What? Well, famously recently, not okay. that united, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ununited kingdom. <laughs> the, the British Isles? Yeah. The They're British. all British. I get so confused between the UK, the British Isles, The whole world Britain. does, don't worry. It's only them they care about. Okay. <laughs> so ignorant over here in Australia. Yeah. We just have one big landmass and we just keep to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so she um, started off wanting to be a pr- in presenting, got kind of like coaxed into thinking she'd be an English teacher. But then as she grew up, the need to be a conservationist suddenly became more apparent to her as she grew out of her small town and she started to see other parts of the world and how it was being treated. So she ended up going to Indonesia and finding a frog biologist in the middle of the rainforest. And she's like, whoa, this is something I could do. Like, I love frogs. I could be a frog biologist. <laughs> There's got to be jobs, jobs in frog biology. Well, here's this frog biologist just <laughs> being themselves. Yeah, having a job. Um, but she knew that's not what her friends and family were expecting. Like, don't do media. Okay, I'll be a frog biologist. <laughs> so uh, turns out she didn't have enough grades for a master's in conservation. So she just started reaching out to all these people all over the world to see if she could just get a job somewhere. She's no Amber with just Seven phenomenal... Degrees. <laughs> 
any any coursework is immediately good at it. Yeah, I know. Um, but then she ended up finding a three-month contract in an amphibian research institute in the States, which kind of opened the doors for her. Then she, with that experience, was able to go on and do a master's and a PhD. And then she kind of fell into this amazing balance between her love of media and her love of frogs. So she says, I doesn't... <laughs> and she says again, <laughs> why can't I speak? A dozen years, one master's degree, and a PhD later, I was not only hankering after the glamour of a media career, but I'd also come to recognise the value of conservation through storytelling. The accessibility of television and film, in particular, makes them amazing outreach tools. And although the nature of television is changing, the popularity of the screen medium continues to grow. And I got really lucky for a second time. When I was a PhD student, I sat on an advisory board for a sustainability course, there, I met a TV producer who was looking for someone to fact check a children's wildlife show, and the rest, they say, is history. So, she finally got into a position where she was able to balance frogs and biology and wildlife with media and TV presenting. And I think like that's so cool that she kind of had this parallel life of caring about media and presenting and wildlife and she just carried that throughout her whole life this dichotomy of both um, so now she is a science media professional who prevents writes and researches science stories presents oh presents what did i say prevents oh prevents no she presents <laughs> <laughs> she presents writes and researches science stories and she has also worked on films podcasts and she founded the famous is famous here because it's in Victoria, uh, Frogs Victoria, which my circle of friends... Famous, you say? Or, so uh, I read that and I thought, I wonder if that's a Victoria in Australia because I've never heard of Frogs Victoria and I don't think she's talking about the same Victoria so in Australia. because Angie's really involved in it, Angie on the other podcast, but um, there's a lot of herpers here in Victoria that also do like on Instagram a Frog Friday where every Friday they'll all post their frogs. And it's just so wholesome. <laughs> so I know like a lot of people involved in Frogs Victoria here, which is, I think, why it meant something to me when I read it. Um, yeah. But obviously Todd and probably all of you have never heard of her. <laughs> um, but it's like so amazing that she'd been able to balance like um, her media and presenting love with science because she realized that how she best conserves is through storytelling and education. And I can relate a lot to this. So instead of media and presenting, I kind of ended up finding that the way that I love doing conservation the most is through teaching. So I relate to wanting to share the stories of wildlife more than I want to be out with the frog biologist trudging through swamps. <laughs> and also my frog friends here... Which is in, fine if you want to do that. My frog friends here in Victoria stay up all night looking for frogs because you go out at night when they start chirping away. Um, and as a bird person, there's no way I can get up in the morning to look at birds while also being up all night looking at frogs. You so, have to pick one. Yeah, I just don't think the schedule of the frog life is for me. <laughs> but yeah, I just think these are two really great examples about how you can get skills outside of conservation, but really lend themselves to finding your perfect niche job in the conservation industry. And the fancy scientist, Stephanie Shuttler, um, she is 
a great lonely conservationist as well, she talks a lot about how a lot of people think that they have to go into science if you're in conservation, but there's so many other careers outside of science and academia that can lead you to protecting wildlife and conserving wild spaces like um, conservation technology, which I think Todd is really amazing at. Where I was wondering when you're going to drag me into I'm this going topic. To drag you into this topic, but I'm just saying like you would never, you never had to do a science degree. You never have to publish papers to design like niche tracking devices for turtles. Like <laughs> it, you, if you know how to tinker and create technological things, devices. <laughs> if you know how to like create bespoke technology and apply it to fulfilling a goal to achieve like conservation goals, then that's all you need is like you don't need to know anything about the turtle except for the like what specifically defines the parameters of what you need to build if that makes sense like the only parts of the turtle you need to know maybe like the depth that it swims that it's like in the ocean so the device needs to be waterproof give me the specifications yeah the specs of the turtle (laughs) yeah so it's this is why i feel like anyone can be a conservationist because Basically, Todd was so useful in conservation with zero conservation training. And I guess what makes it really great for Lynn and for Amber is that they also have conservation training. So it kind of gives them a bit of a leg up. But even if you're deciding to get into conservation for the very first time, if you're an architect, you could move into designing zoo enclosures or aquariums or greenhouses. If you're like an IT person, you could build apps and software for tracking animals, for storing data. Like, there's just so much you can do for conservation with any career pathway, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't have to know everything about frogs. Yeah. To help the frogs. (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes the frogs just need, like, a little fence around them. (laughs) You need to be a carpenter to build it. And now the frogs got their own little space. Yeah, you just need to send your person the specs of the frogs. And then (laughs) they'll they'll work to your specification. How would you build a frog tracker? Hmm. I don't know, because <laughs> they breathe through their skin, so you couldn't really adhere anything to their They're skin. They're a bit delicate to, like, Velcro something <laughs> onto it. Yeah. I don't know if you can track frogs. I think with... I don't f- think they travel enough to need tracking. <laughs> I think, like, because frogs are indicator species, that's how you tell the health of the environment. So if they have left that environment or they're dead, then you know you need to fix the environment. You don't need to track the frogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if anything, you need to track the trees. You need to track the water quality or the abundance of water. Uh, I'm not a frog expert, so if I'm talking shit, then feel free to correct me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what can we do to help people who are not purist conservationists? How can we help them get into conservation and thrive? Yeah. Is that that how you view it? Is like get all these uh, outsiders into conservation? Or would you push people who are in conservation to go get some quote-unquote real-world experience and skills? Both, because as I said at the start of this podcast, I've been really inspired by this community to do the latter and to go get Because your personal story has been very, I care about animals, (laughs) I will just 100% focus my life on that. Yeah, Yeah, so I've done the opposite, and I nowadays, late into my career... For like well, I mean, someone in their not 20s. that old. Well, like, the latest it's possibly could be for how old I am. <laughs> like right now, I am trying to get other skills because I've realised that I. So basically, I got a teaching job two years ago that's just taking um, excursions in 
different locations of Victoria. So I teach in the forest, I teach at a marine sanctuary, I teach recycling at a school. And I just fell in love with that job because I just realized that I can be in nature and I can share that experience with people. And I didn't have to just be alone looking at ants through a magnifying glass. Like the joy of sharing the wonders of nature and how to recycle and everything with kids, that just made me feel so happy. So then I decided that this is something I wanted to do more. And Lonely Conservationist has been designing some education programs over over 2020 as like just in the background it hasn't been uh like a big thing that's definitely like we're working on this now and we have a due date we've just been piecing some concepts together and that's why i'm doing this training degree or no a training certificate because i want to be qualified enough to design education programs bring them to life bring them into fruition but i didn't really realized that teaching was something that I wanted to take super seriously because I thought oh if I get a teaching degree I have to spend three years of my life uh, like learning how to teach in a classroom and I don't want to teach in the classroom or I have to do a master's degree to learn how to be a primary school or a high school teacher I had no idea until recently that I could just teach only about sustainability and (laughs) only outside yeah so not be stuck teaching fractions to primary school kids yeah and i think this is part of the the reason why people get stuck is because they don't know what's out there so i could never have dreamed of wanting to just be a sustainability teacher because i thought you could only be a classroom teacher or a professor at university or something so maybe a lot of people don't want to get into conservation because they just think it's only academia and only science and how can you get into conservation if you don't like what you perceive your options to be Mm. like people out there might not know that they could study um, conservation alongside technology and create apps to track whale sharks like they might not know that that's a thing that you can even do so maybe that's one thing is we need to start talking more openly about the opportunities that conservationists have and the opportunities that people who don't have strict conservation degrees what they can do to get into conservation because i've said it a billion times citizen science so easy to do you can get so much experience from it like there's so many opportunities to get into conservation if you only have credentials and something else yep (laughs) (laughs) what else like just say just say you actually really cared about being a conservationist and you haven't just been, actually care. and you haven't just been forced in th- into it through me and everyone listening on the podcast yeah. like what do you think would help you become have more exposure to being a conservationist or like having just a technology background what would have helped you bring you in um it's for me it was just like seeing the needs and the problems mm. is like the problem so like you keep saying technology it's a big world of engineering within that but like just for example software stuff everyone who writes software most of what they write is like for themselves Mm -hmm. so there's all this like very complicated software about software but if you're studying yeah frogs frogs is the example of the episode (laughs) you know you might be like fuck i wish i had this way to like keep track of this and this or an app that did this to help with frogs and person who's obsessed with software is not going to know about that yeah and that's really the problem 
Yeah. So I wonder if there's, I don't know, I think what would really help, because this is the only way Todd knows about this, is if you're a conservationist, talk to people in your life about the bespoke problems you have. Because otherwise Todd would never have known that we need to fly drones to find orangutan nests. Like, you never would have known we need AI and machine learning to sort camera trap photos. Like, you would not know this stuff unless I, unless you'd seen me, like, scrolling through oh, yeah. a billion owl photos. Like, Yeah, I saw you doing that. I'm like, oh, you know, there's, like, people <laughs> actively working on technology to know if there's an owl in the photo. Yeah. So like, I, that's a real thing. I was sorting through 8,000 camera trap photos of owls to help my friend in her honours degree because i like i'm a slut for camera trap photos <laughs> i just love looking through them <laughs> you get the follow the drama of the owls yeah but it is so tedious sometimes if there's like no owl but there's like <laughs> actually i like it when there's like a weird magpie coming to suss out the owl house <laughs> but like if there's one time i was watching a camera trap um series of camera trap photos and there was a plant that grew <laughs> it like grew in real time and like every picture of the plant was taller and it finally grew tall and then somebody had like come along and snapped it off and I was like no <laughs> but like if it's a windy the day the software's not gonna care about that yeah. plant if you if it's a windy day sometimes you'll just get like heaps of photos of just a tree blowing in the wind in front of the in yeah. front of the camera and the software can like cancel all of that out yeah so if you have friends in other genres of careers what i hear you saying is <laughs> if you have a friend who knows anything about technology as jesse puts it not technology you should tell them about your idea for an app <laughs> they would love to hear it they will absolutely jump at the chance to no. build it for you no 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 and like even if i have a, a question about something small i'll ask todd and he might just have a simple solution or put me in the right track but it's not even technology like if you're in medicine maybe there's something like there's you're in uh, Tanzania and there was a lake poison and then there's some elephants that have died. Maybe like this medical professional can like help you with knowing like, oh, like I I reckon there would be a crossover from human medicine to veterinary science. Like (laughs) even if it's small, there would be like a basic understanding of human anatomy that could be translated into animal anatomy. Like the function of liver, the function of kidneys is going to be in the same in like all mammals right except for otters what? who what apparently you, have what's like this really scenario good i don't understand but like <laughs> even if you're a i'm just saying like if you have any other career path if you have friends with any other career path there may be some crossover between their career and conservation and they may be able to help you with problems that they didn't even know exist and that might get them into it yeah that basically that's what i'm saying (laughs) but for purist conservationists the purists don't be a dick the (laughs) if somebody is into conservation and they haven't traveled abroad they haven't volunteered anywhere they haven't like got hands-on fieldwork skills don't be an elitist dickhead that are people like that (laughs) yeah have you come across people like that oh no because like i am purist so nobody's gonna come at me for this but like so for instance the last chat we did was with Maria and Gus and they felt some imposter syndrome from not having that amount of experience and people would have expect, if they say they're in conservation, people have expected a lot more of them and thought that they'd travelled to more places and done more than they have and mm. they had to be like, oh no, I've only, only been to this one place or done, I'm only like uh, a semester into my degree and then people are like, oh. Well, what are you, why are you even talking about it? <laughs> so I think like... I can it, relate to that when I went to a dinner at a conservation convention yeah. that you were at 
and I was chatting to them about the work I was doing in Indonesia. Yeah. And they were like, oh, so what university are you with? And I was like, oh, I'm not at a university at all. I work at a store. <laughs> <laughs> and he just literally laughed in my face. Yeah. I think I said it as a joke a bit, but... <laughs> no, but then I was in a conference last year, last February, and somebody asked me what university I was with and I said I'm not with a university and they basically turn around and diverted eye contact (laughs) so there is like the same thing happened to me so if you are in academia or if you are in a like professional conservation job or you've been in conservation your whole life just be really sympathetic to how it feels to be on the other side with somebody who's already got imposter syndrome because they haven't had that much experience Um, they might have like especially Amber, she spent all this time in maths, even though she loves wildlife and probably knows a lot. She doesn't have that like formal training to back her up after her, like when she left her first degree. So she's already probably feeling imposter syndrome at events and stuff of not having this extra volunteer experience. So I think it's really important if you are a purist conservationist to learn about the other things that they have been doing, whether it be neuroscience or maths or presenting whatever it is because that is their edge that's going to set them apart it doesn't mean they're lesser than you or any less experience it means that they have like more ability to get into the like a very niche job that benefits all their skills and yeah um, interests 100 percent. yeah it does i think i know my it industry we do this a lot we're like we have end users you know the normies Mm -hmm. They won't know how to use computers as well as we do. Yeah. And a lot of IT people will be like, oh, what, what idiots, you know? Oh, they, they don't know anything. But, like, they have their own job. And, you know, they're busy, you know... Doing other stuff. Being a neuroscientist. <laughs> yeah. You know, they have the same time as you do to learn all about computers. So, like, you know, don't judge them. Yeah, like, if you're a radiologist, you only know what software it takes to look at x-rays. And you won't know how to, like, troubleshoot if, like, the software breaks down because... Yeah, yeah. If their USB niche. drive conks up, they're not gonna be like, "Oh, let me try like you know these things." Like they're not gonna know. Yeah, exactly. And why should they know? Yeah. So I, I think that like every industry is gonna have like sort of snobbish people. Yeah. Well, I think this whole point of lonely conservationists in general is to try to remove the snobbery, <laughs> <laughs> because everyone brings something really special to the table, and yeah. the uniqueness and. Diversity is what sets us apart. And why are we so obsessed with conserving diversity in species, but not diversity in people? Uh... Mic drop. (laughs) Because we need a diversity of skills, a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of thought. Because if you only have strict academic people sitting at a table making decisions, where are the landowners? Where are the people that have, like... Yeah. dealt with other parts of the problem and it can see it in a different light there's no point having everyone with the same skill set and the same experience at the table it's going to do nothing for conservation i think people are starting to realize the value in it mm. like every big business that says a lot that they value diversity what they usually mean is they like you say they want diverse skills yeah and like diverse backgrounds of knowledge to like bring different ideas they don't really care what gender or race you are yeah well that's the problem when they do factor in gender or race and then you feel like you feel quotas of that it doesn't get like it doesn't ensure diversity of skills and experience you could have like all academic corporate people (laughs) that just happen to be of like diverse cultural backgrounds or diverse genders 
Yeah, yeah. They yeah. could all have the exact same knowledge and the exact same <laughs> ideas, even though you know they had they have different food at home. Pretty much is the yeah. only difference. <laughs> so I guess in conclusion, no matter who you are out here, you will all have something that sets you apart. Whether it be like no two lives are the same, no two experiences are the same, no two perceptions are the same. So you have to stop pushing down and hiding what makes you different and highlighting that because in the end that's what's going to give you the edge to get you further in your career stop trying to be like everybody else if there's like one job available and 200 conservation graduates then there's like 99 people who are the same then yeah they might just cut out those 99 people straight away because they're not bringing anything new to the table if you feel like the old one out means you're doing something right yeah you're doing something right I saw a lame quote back in the day, uh, be the Cheerio in a world full of, what are those really disgusting ones? The little boring... Fruitless? Oh yeah, be a Fruit Loop in the world full of Cheerios. I was, I was like say, describing Cheerios. <laughs> if I was in a world of Fruit Loops and I was a Cheerio, I would feel weird. Yeah, you have to be a Fruit Loop in a world full of Cheerios. That's the real saying. So ignore the other one. <laughs> I like how there's obvious connotations cheerios and fruit loops yeah well i don't even like the taste of cheerios it's probably an unpopular opinion but they're like they have no personality if you're gonna have a sugary cereal just go all out and get fruit loops if you're gonna have personality just make it as bright and sweet as possible So you came for a conservationist podcast and you left with a cereal party. <laughs> um, thank you for listening into this episode and I hope that you have been enjoying them all so far. If you want to see more blogs just like Lynette's and Amber's, head over to the website at www.lonelyconservationist.com. You can join the community on Instagram at lonelyconservationist, Twitter at lonelyconserve. You can even support us on Patreon. Uh, at patreon.com slash lonelyconservationist and have you read my book yet? Have you done it? If you haven't, uh, now would be a really good time to support me. So yeah, um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and being a part of the Lonely Conservationist family and I'll see you again next week. Bye!